0: AND NOW, ONE OF THE GREATEST ADVENTURES EVER WRITTEN, TARZAN OF THE APES, BY EDGAR RICE Burroughs. CHAPTER One: OUT TO SEA. I had this story from one who had no business to tell it to me, or to any other. I may credit the seductive influence of an old vintage upon the narrator for the beginning of it, and my own skeptical incredulity during the days that followed for the balance of the strange tale when my convivial host discovered that he had told me so much, and that I was prone to doubtfulness, his foolish pride assumed the task the old vintage had commenced, and so he unearthed written evidence in the form of musty manuscript, and dry official records of the British colonial office to support many of the salient features of this remarkable narrative. I do not say the story is true, for I did not witness the happenings which it portrays, but the fact that in the telling of it to you I have taken fictitious names for the principal characters quite sufficiently evidences the sincerity of my own belief that it may be true. The yellow, mildewed pages of the diary of a man long dead and the records of the colonial office dovetail perfectly with the narrative of my convivial host, so I give you the story as I painstakingly pieced it out from these several various agencies. If you do not find it credible, you will at least be as one with me in acknowledging that it is unique, remarkable, and interesting. From the records of the colonial office and from the dead man's diary, we learn that a certain young English nobleman whom we shall call John Clayton, Lord de Greystroke, was commissioned to make a peculiarly delicate investigation of conditions in a British West Coast African colony from whose simple native inhabitants Another European power was known to be recruiting soldiers for its native army, which it used solely for the forcible collection of rubber and ivory from the savage tribes along the Congo and the Aruwimi. The natives of the British colony complained that many of their young men were enticed away through the medium of fair and glowing promises, but that few, if any, ever returned to their families. The Englishmen in Africa went even further saying that these poor blacks were held in virtual slavery, since after their terms of enlistment expired, their ignorance was imposed upon by their white officers, and they were told that they had yet several years to serve. And so the colonial office appointed John Clayton to a new post in British West Africa. But his confidential instruction centered on a thorough investigation of the unfair treatment of black British subjects by the officers of a friendly European power. Why he was sent... Is, however, of little moment to this story, for he never made an investigation, nor, in fact, did he ever reach his destination. Clayton was the type of Englishman that one likes best to associate with the noblest monuments of historic achievement upon a thousand victorious battlefields, a strong, virile man, mentally, morally, and physically. In stature, he was above the average height, his eyes were gray his features regular and strong, his carriage that of perfect, robust health influenced by his years of army training. Political ambition had caused him to seek transference from the army to the colonial office, and so we find him, still young, entrusted with a delicate and important commission in the service of the Queen. When he received this appointment, he was both elated and appalled. The preferment seemed to him in the nature of a well-merited reward for painstaking and intelligent service and as a stepping-stone to posts of greater importance and responsibility. But on the other hand, he had been married to the Honorable Alice Rutherford for scarce a three months, and it was the thought of taking this fair young girl into the dangers and isolation of tropical Africa that appalled him. For her sake he would have refused the appointment, but she wouldn't have it so. Instead, she insisted that he accept, and indeed, take her with him. There were mothers and brothers and sisters and aunts and cousins to express various opinions on the subject, but as to what they severally advised, history is silent. We know only that on a bright May morning in 1888, John, Lord Greystoke, and Lady Alice sailed from Dover on their way to Africa. A month later they arrived at Freetown, where they chartered a small sailing vessel, the Fualda, which was to bear them to their final destination and here John, Lord Greystoke, and Lady Alice, his wife, vanished from the eyes and the knowledge of men. Two months after they weighed anchor and cleared from the port of Freetown, a half-dozen British war-vessels were scouring the South Atlantic for trace of them on their little vessel, and it was almost immediately that the wreckage was found upon the shores of St. Helena, which convinced the world that the Fualda had gone down with all on board, and hence the search was stopped ere it had scarce begun though hope lingered in longing hearts for many years. The Fualda, a barkentine of about one hundred tons, was a vessel of the type often seen in coastwise trade in the far southern Atlantic. Their crews composed of the off-scourings of the sea, unhanged murderers and cutthroats of every race and every nation. And the Fualda was no exception to that rule. Her officers were swarthy bullies, hating and hated by their crew. The captain, while a competent seaman, was a brute in his treatment of his men. He knew, or at least he used, but two arguments in his dealings with them. A belaying pin and a revolver. Nor is it likely that the motley aggregation he signed would have understood anything else. And so it was, from the second day out from Freetown, John Clayton and his young wife witnessed scenes upon the deck of the Fualda, such as they had believed were never enacted outside the covers of... "'of printed stories of the sea. "'It was on the morning of the second day "'that the first link was forged "'in what was destined to form a chain of circumstances "'ending in a life for one then unborn. Two sailors were washing down the decks of the Fualda. "'The first mate was on duty, "'and the captain had stopped to speak "'with John Clayton and Lady Alice. "'The men were working backwards toward the little party "'who were facing away from the sailors.' Closer and closer they came, until one of them was directly behind the captain. In another moment he would have passed by, and this strange narrative would never have been recorded. But just that instant the officer turned to leave Lord and Lady Greystoke, and, as he did so, tripped against the sailor and sprawled headlong upon the deck, overturning the water-pail so that he was drenched in its dirty contents. For an instant the scene was ludicrous, but only for an instant. With a volley of awful oaths, his face suffused with a scarlet of mortification and rage, the captain regained his feet and with a terrific blow felled the sailor to the deck. The man was small and rather old, so that the brutality of the act was thus accentuated. The other seaman, however, was neither old nor small. A huge bear of a man, with fierce black mustachios and a great bull-neck set between massive shoulders. As he saw his mate go down, he crouched, and with a low snarl sprang upon the captain, crushing him to his knees with a single mighty blow. From scarlet the officer's face went white, for this was mutiny, and mutiny he had met and subdued before in his brutal career. Without waiting to rise, he whipped a revolver from his pocket, firing point-blank at the great mountain of muscle towering before him. But, quick as he was, John Clayton was almost as quick, so that the bullet which was intended for the sailor's heart lodged in the sailor's leg instead, for Lord Greystoke had struck down the captain's arm as he had seen the weapon flash in the sun. Words passed between Clayton and the captain, the former making it plain that he was disgusted with the brutality displayed toward the crew, nor would he countenance anything further of the kind while he and Lady Greystoke remained passengers. THE CAPTAIN WAS ON THE POINT OF MAKING AN ANGRY REPLY, BUT, THINKING BETTER OF IT, TURNED ON HIS HEEL, AND BLACK AND SCOWLING, strode APT. HE DID NOT CARE TO ANTAGONIZE AN ENGLISH OFFICIAL, FOR THE QUEEN'S MIGHTY ARM WIELDED A PUNITIVE INSTRUMENT WHICH HE COULD APPRECIATE, AND WHICH HE FEARED, ENGLAND'S FAR-REACHING NAVY. THE TWO SAILORS PICKED THEMSELVES UP, THE OLDER MAN ASSISTING HIS WOUNDED COMRADE TO RISE the big fellow, who was known among his mates as Black Michael, tried his leg gingerly, and, finding that it bore his weight, turned to Clayton with a word of gruff thanks. Though the fellow's tone was surly, his words were evidently well meant. Ere he had scarce finished his little speech, he had turned and was limping off toward the forecastle with the very apparent intention of forestalling any further conversation. They did not see him again for several days, Nor did the captain accord them more than the surliest of grunts when he was forced to speak to them. They took their meals in his cabin, as they had before the unfortunate occurrence, but the captain was careful to see that his duties never permitted him to eat at the same time. The other officers were coarse, illiterate fellows, but little above the villainous crew they bullied, and were only too glad to avoid social intercourse with the polished English noble and his lady, so that the Claytons were left very much to themselves. This in itself accorded perfectly with their desires, but it also rather isolated them from the life of the little ship so that they were unable to keep in touch with the daily happenings, which were to culminate so soon in bloody tragedy. There was in the whole atmosphere of the craft that undefinable something which presages disaster. Outwardly, to the knowledge of the Claytons, all went on as before upon the little vessel but that there was an undertow leading them towards some unknown danger both felt, though they did not speak of it to each other. On the second day after the wounding of Black Michael, Clayton came on deck just in time to see the limp body of one of the crew being carried below by four of his fellows, while the first mate, a heavy belaying pin in his hand, stood glowering at the little party of sullen sailors. Clayton asked no questions. He did not need to and the following day, as the great lines of a British battleship grew out of the distant horizon, he half determined to demand that he and Lady Alice be put aboard her, for his fears were steadily increasing that nothing but harm could result from remaining on the lowering, sullen Fualda. Toward noon they were within speaking distance of the British vessel, but when Clayton had nearly decided to ask the captain to put them aboard her, the obvious ridiculousness of such a request "'became suddenly apparent. "'What reason could he give the officer "'commanding Her Majesty's ship "'for desiring to go back in the direction "'from which he had just come? "'What if he told them "'that two insubordinate seamen "'had been roughly handled by their officers? "'They would but laugh in their sleeves "'and attribute his reason "'for wishing to leave the ship to but one thing, "'cowardice. "'John Clayton, Lord Greystoke, "'did not ask to be transferred "'to the British Man of War. Late in the afternoon he saw her upper works fade below the far horizon, but not before he learned that which confirmed his greatest fears, and caused him to curse the false pride which had restrained him from seeking safety for his young wife a few short hours before, when safety was within reach, a safety which was now gone forever. It was mid-afternoon that brought the little old sailor, who had been felled by the captain a few days before, to where Clayton and his wife stood by the ship's side, watching the ever-diminishing outlines of the great battleship disappear. The old fellow was polishing brasses, and as he came edging along, until close to Clayton, he said, in an undertone, "'Ails to pay, sir, on this ere craft, and mark my word for it, "'Ails to pay!' And "'What do you mean, good fellow?' asked Clayton. "'Why, hasn't you seen what's going on?' Haven't you heard that devil's spawn of a cap'n and his mates knocking the bloomin' lights out and off the crew? Two busted heads yesterday, and three to day. Black Michael's as good as new again, and he's not the bully to stand for it, not he, and mark my word for it, sir. You mean, my man, that the crew is contemplating mutiny? asked Clayton. Mutiny? exclaimed the old fellow. Mutiny? They means murder, sir, and mark my word for it, sir. When? It's coming, sir, it's coming, but I'm not saying when, as I've said too damn much now, but you was a good sort the other day, and I thought it no more than right to warn you. But keep a still tongue in your head, and when you hear shooting, get below and stay there. That's all, only keep a still tongue in your head, or they'll put a pill between your ribs, and mark my word for it, sir and the old fellow went on with his polishing, which carried him away from where the Claytons were standing. Deuced cheerful outlook, Alice,' said Clayton. "'You should warn the captain at once, John. Possibly the trouble may yet be averted,' she said. "'I suppose I should. Whatever they do now, they'll spare us a recognition of my stand for this fellow Black Michael. But should they find that I've betrayed them, there would be no mercy shown us, Alice.' you have but one duty, John, and that lies in the interest of vested authority. If you do not warn the captain, you are as much a party to whatever follows as though you had helped to plot and carry it out with your own head and hands.' "'You do not understand, dear,' replied Clayton. "'It is of you, I am thinking. There lies my first duty. The captain has brought this condition upon himself, so why
1: then should I risk subjecting my wife to unthinkable horrors in a probably futile attempt to save him from his own brutal folly. You have no conception, dear,
0: of what would follow were this pack of cutthroats to gain control of the Fualda. Duty is duty, John, and no amount of sophistries may change it. I would be a poor wife for an English lord were I to be responsible for his shirking a plain duty. I realize the danger which must follow, but I can face it with you. "'Have it as you will, then, Alice,' he answered, smiling. "'Maybe
1: we are borrowing trouble. Well, I do not like the looks of things on board this ship, they may not be so bad after all, for it is possible that the ancient mariner was but voicing
0: the desires of his wicked old heart, rather than speaking of real facts.
1: Mutiny on the high sea may have been common a hundred years ago, but in this good year of 1888 it is the least likely of happenings. There goes the captain to his cabin now. If I'm going to warn him, I might as well get the beastly job over, for I have little stomach to talk with the brute at all. And so saying, he strolled carelessly in the
0: direction of the companionway through which the captain had passed, and a moment later was knocking at his door. "'Come in,' growled the deep tones of that surly officer, and when Clayton had entered and closed the door behind him, "'Well?'
1: "'I have come to report the gist of a conversation I heard today. "'because I feel that, while there may be nothing to it, it is as well that you be forearmed. "'In short, the men contemplate mutiny and murder.'
0: "'It's a lie,' roared the captain. "'And if you've been interfering again with the discipline of this ship, "'or meddling in affairs that don't concern you, "'you can take the consequences and be damned. "'I don't care whether you're an English lord or not. "'I'm captain of this here ship.' and from now on you keep your meddling nose out of my business. The captain had worked himself up to such a frenzy of rage that he was fairly purple of face, and he shrieked the last words at the top of his voice, emphasizing his remarks by a loud thumping of the table with one huge fist and shaking the other in Clayton's face. Greystoke never turned a hair, but stood eyeing the excited man with level gaze. "'Captain Billings,' he drawled finally, "'if you will pardon my candour, "'I might remark that you are something of an ass.' Whereupon he turned and left the captain with the same indifferent ease that was habitual with him, and which was more sorely calculated to raise the ire of a man of Billings' class than a torrent of invective could have. So, whereas the captain might easily have been brought to regret his hasty speech had Clayton attempted to conciliate him, His temper was now irrevocably set in the mould in which Clayton had left it, and the last chance of their working together for their common good was gone. "'Well, Alice,' said Clayton, as he rejoined his wife, "'I might have saved my
1: breath. The fellow proved most ungrateful, fairly jumped at me like a mad dog. He and his blasted old ship may hang, for aught I care, and until we're safely off the thing I shall spend my energies—' and looking after our own welfare.
0: And I rather fancy the first step to that end should be to go to our cabin and look over my revolvers. I am sorry now that we packed the larger guns and the ammunition with the stuff below. They found their quarters in a bad state of disorder, however. Clothing from their open boxes and bags strewed the little apartment, and even their beds had been torn to pieces. Evidently someone was more anxious about our belongings than we said Clayton. Let's have a look around, Alice, and see what's missing. A thorough search revealed the fact that nothing had been taken but Clayton's two revolvers and the small supply of ammunition he had saved out for them. Those are the very things I most wish they'd left us, said Clayton, and the fact that they wished for them and them alone is most sinister. What are we to do, John? asked his wife. Perhaps you were right, and that our best chance lies in maintaining a neutral position. "'If the officers are able to prevent a mutiny,' his wife said, "'we have nothing to fear. While if the mutineers are victorious, our one slim hope lies in not having attempted to thwart or antagonize them.' "'Right you are, Alice. We'll keep in the middle of the road.' As they started to straighten up their cabin, Clayton and his wife simultaneously noticed the corner of a piece of paper protruding from beneath the door of the quarters. As Clayton stooped to reach for it, he was amazed to see it move further into the room, and then realized it was being pushed inward by someone from without. Quickly and silently he stepped toward the door, but as he reached for the knob to throw it open, his wife's hand fell upon his wrist. No, John, she whispered. They do not wish to be seen, and so we cannot afford to see them. Do not forget that we are keeping to the middle of the road. Clayton smiled and dropped his hand to his side. Thus they stood watching the little bit of white paper until it finally remained at rest upon the floor, just inside the door. Then Clayton stooped and picked it up. It was a bit of grimy white paper roughly folded into a ragged square. Opening it, they found a crude message printed almost illegibly, and with many evidences of an unaccustomed task Translated, it was a warning to the Claytons to refrain from reporting the loss of their revolvers or from repeating what the old sailor had told them. To refrain on pain of death. "'I rather imagine we'll be good,' said Clayton, with a rueful smile. "'About all we can do is sit tight and wait for whatever may come.'" Chapter 2. The Savage Home Nor did they have long to wait, for the next morning as Clayton was emerging on deck for his accustomed walk before breakfast, a shot rang out, and then another, and another. The sight which met his eyes confirmed his worst fears. Facing the little knot of officers was the entire motley crew of the Fualda, and at their head stood Black Michael. At the first volley from the officers the men ran for shelter, and from points of vantage behind masts, wheelhouse and cabin they returned the fire of the five men who represented the hated authority of the ship two of their number had gone down before the captain's revolver they lay where they had fallen between the combatants but then the first mate lunged forward upon his face and at a cry of command from black michael the mutineers charged at the remaining four the crew had been able to muster but six firearms so most of them were armed with boat hooks axes hatchets and crowbars The captain had emptied his revolver and was reloading as the charge was made. The second mate's gun had jammed, and so there were but two weapons opposed to the mutineers as they bore down upon the officers, who now started to give back before the infuriated rush of their men. Both sides were cursing and swearing in a frightful manner, which, together with the reports of the firearms and the screams and groans of the wounded, turned the deck of the Fualda to the likeness of a madhouse. Before the officers had taken a dozen backward steps, the men were upon them. An axe cleft the captain from forehead to chin, and an instant later the others were down, dead or wounded from dozens of blows and bullet wounds. Short and grisly had been the work of the mutineers of the Fualda, and through it all John Clayton had stood leaning carelessly beside the companionway, puffing meditatively upon his pipe as though he had been but watching an indifferent cricket match. As the last officer went down, he thought it was time that he returned to his wife, lest some members of the crew find her alone below. Though outwardly calm and indifferent, Clayton was inwardly apprehensive and wrought up, for he feared for his wife's safety at the hands of these ignorant half-brutes, into whose hands fate had so remorselessly thrown them. As he turned to descend the ladder, he was surprised to see his wife standing on the steps, almost at his side. How long have you been here, Alice? "'Since the beginning,' she replied. "'How awful, John! How awful! "'What can we hope for at the hands of such as those?' "'Breakfast, I hope,' he answered, smiling bravely in an attempt to allay her fears. "'At least,' he added, "'I'm going to ask them. Come with me, Alice. "'We must not let them think we expect any but courteous treatment.' The men had by this time surrounded the dead and wounded officers, and without either partiality or compassion proceeded to throw both living and dead over the sides of the vessel. With equal heartlessness they disposed of their own dead and dying. Presently one of the crew spied the approaching Claytons, and with a cry of, Here's two more for the fishes, rushed toward them with uplifted axe. But Black Michael was even quicker, so that the fellow went down with a bullet in his back before he had taken a half a dozen steps. With a loud roar, Black Michael attracted the attention of the others, and, pointing to Lord and Lady Greystoke, cried,
1: "'These here are my friends, and they are to be left alone. Do you understand? I'm captain of this ship now, and what I says goes,' he added, turning to Clayton. "'Just keep to yourselves, and nobody will harm you.'
0: And he looked threateningly on his fellows. The Claytons heeded Black Michael's instructions so well that they saw but little of the crew and knew nothing of the plans the men were making. Occasionally they heard faint echoes of brawls and quarreling among the mutineers, and on two occasions the vicious bark of firearms rang out on the still air. But Black Michael was fit leader for this band of cutthroats and withal held them in fair subjection to his rule. On the fifth day following the murder of the ship's officers, Land was sighted by the lookout. Whether island or mainland, Black Michael did not know, but he announced to Clayton that if investigation showed that the place was habitable, he and Lady Greystoke were to be put ashore with their belongings.
1: "'You'll be all right there for a few months,' he explained, "'and by that time we'll have been able to make an inhabited coast somewhere and scatter a bit. Then I'll see that your government's notified where you be, and they'll soon send a man of war to fetch you off.' "'It would be a hard matter to land you in civilization without a lot of questions being asked, and none of us here has any very convincing answers up our sleeve.' Clayton
0: remonstrated against the humanity of landing them upon an unknown shore to be left to the mercies of savage beasts and possibly still more savage men. But his words were of no avail and only tended to anger Black Michael, so he was forced to desist and make the best he could of a bad situation.' About three o'clock in the afternoon, they came about off a beautiful wooded shore opposite the mouth of what appeared to be a land-locked harbor. Black Michael sent a small boat filled with men to sound the entrance in an effort to determine if the Fualda could be safely worked through the entrance. In about an hour, they returned and reported deep water through the passage as well as far into the little basin. Before dark, the barkentine lay peacefully at anchor upon the bosom of the still Nearer like surface of the harbor. The surrounding shores were beautiful with semi tropical verdure, while in the distance the country rose from the ocean in hill and tableland, almost uniformly clothed by primeval forest. No signs of habitation were visible, but that the land might easily support human life was evidenced by the abundant bird and animal life of which the watchers on the Fualda's deck caught occasional glimpses as well as by the shimmer of a little river which emptied into the harbor, ensuring fresh water in plenitude. As darkness settled upon the earth, Clayton and Lady Alice still stood by the ship's rail in silent contemplation of their future abode. From the dark shadows of the mighty forest came the wild calls of savage beasts, the deep roar of the lion, and occasionally the shrill scream of a panther. The woman shrank closer to the man in terror-stricken anticipation of the horrors lying in wait for them in the awful blackness of the nights to come, when they should be alone upon that wild and lonely shore. Later in the evening, Black Michael joined them long enough to instruct them to make their preparations for landing on the morrow. They tried to persuade him to take them to some more hospitable coast near enough to civilization so that they might hope to fall into friendly hands.
1: But no pleas or threats or promises of reward, could move him. I am the only man aboard who would not rather see ye both safely dead, and while I know that's the sensible way to make sure of our own necks, yet Black Michael's not the man to forget a favor. You saved my life once, and in return, I'm going to spare yours, but that's all I can do. The men won't stand for any more. If we don't get ye landed pretty quick, they may even change their minds about giving ye that much show. I'll put all your stuff ashore with ye, as well as cooking utensils and some old sails for tents, and enough grub to last ye till you can find fruit and game. With your guns for protection, ye ought to be able to live here easy enough until help comes. When I get safely hid away, I'll see to it that the British government learns about where ye be. For the life of me, I couldn't tell exactly where, for I don't know myself, but they'll find ye all right. After he had left them, they went silently below, each wrapped in
0: gloomy foreboding. Clayton did not believe that Black Michael had the slightest intention of notifying the British government of their whereabouts, nor was he any too sure but that some treachery was contemplated for the following day, when they should be on shore with the sailors who would have to accompany them with their belongings. Once out of Black Michael's sight, any of those men might strike them down and still leave Black Michael's conscience clear. And even should they escape that fate, was it not but to be faced with far graver dangers. Alone he might hope to survive for years, for he was a strong, athletic man. But what of Alice, and that other little life so soon to be launched amidst the hardships and grave dangers of a primeval world? The man shuddered as he meditated upon the awful gravity, the fearful helplessness of their situation, but it was a merciful providence which prevented him from foreseeing the hideous reality which awaited them in the grim depths of the gloomy wood. Early next morning their numerous chests and boxes were hoisted on deck and lowered to waiting small boats for transportation to shore. There was a great quantity and variety of stuff, as the Claytons had expected a possible five to eight years' residence in their new home. Thus, in addition to the many necessities they had brought, there were also many luxuries. Black Michael was determined that nothing belonging to the Claytons should be left on board. Whether out of compassion for them or in furtherance of his own self-interest, it would be difficult to say. There was no question but that the presence of property of a missing British official upon a suspicious vessel would have been a difficult thing to explain in any civilized port in the world. So zealous was he in his efforts to carry out his intentions, that he insisted upon the return of Clayton's revolvers to him by the sailors in whose possession they were. Into the small boats were also loaded salt meats and biscuit with a small supply of potatoes and beans, matches and cooking vessels, a chest of tools, and the old sails which Black Michael had promised him. As though himself fearing the very thing which Clayton had suspected, Black Michael accompanied them to shore and was the last to leave them when the small boats having filled the ship's casks with fresh water, were pushed out toward the waiting Fualda. As the boats moved slowly over the smooth waters of the bay, Clayton and his wife stood silently watching their departure. In the breasts of both, a feeling of impending disaster and utter hopelessness. And behind them, over the edge of a low ridge, other eyes watched, close-set, wicked eyes, "'gleaming beneath shaggy brows. "'As the Fualda passed through the narrow entrance to the harbor "'and out of sight behind a projecting point, "'Lady Alice threw her arms around Clayton's neck "'and burst into uncontrolled sobs. "'Bravely she had faced the dangers of the mutiny. "'With heroic fortitude she had looked into the terrible future. "'But now that the horror of absolute solitude was upon them, "'her overwrought nerves gave way, and the reaction came.' "'He did not attempt to check her tears. "'It were better that nature gave her way "'in relieving these long-pent emotions, "'and it was many minutes before the girl, "'little more than a child she was, "'could again gain mastery of herself. "'Oh, John!' she cried at last. "'The horror of it! "'What are we to do? "'What are we to do?'
1: "'There is but one thing to do,
0: Alice and he spoke as quietly as though they were sitting in their snug living room at home.
1: And that is work. Work must be our salvation. We must not give ourselves time to think, for in that direction lies madness. We must work and wait. I am sure that relief will come, and come quickly, when once it is apparent that the Fuwalda has been lost, even though Black Michael does not keep his word to us. "'But, John, if it were only you and I—' she sobbed. "'We could endure it, I know, but—' "'Yes, dear,' he answered gently. "'I've been thinking of that also. "'But we must face it, as we must face whatever comes, "'bravely and with the utmost confidence "'in our ability to cope with circumstances, "'whatever they may be.'
0: Clayton's first thought was to arrange a sleeping shelter for the night— something which might serve to protect them from prowling beasts of prey. He opened the box containing his rifles and ammunition that they might both be armed against possible attack while at work, and then together they sought a location for their first night's sleeping place. A hundred yards from the beach was a little level spot, fairly free of trees. Here they decided eventually to build a permanent house, but for the time being they both thought it best to construct a little platform in the trees "'out of reach of the larger of the savage beasts "'in whose realm they were. "'To this end, Clayton selected four trees "'which formed a rectangle about eight feet square, "'and cutting long branches from other trees, "'he constructed a framework around them, "'about ten feet from the ground, "'fastening the ends of the branches securely to the trees "'by means of rope, "'a quantity of which Black Michael had furnished him "'from the hold of the Fualda. "'Across this framework, Clayton placed other smaller branches quite close together. This platform he paved with the huge fronds of Elephant's Ear, which grew in profusion about them, and over the fronds he laid a great sail folded into several thicknesses. Seven feet higher, he constructed a similar, though lighter, platform to serve as roof, and from the sides of this he suspended the balance of his sailcloth for walls. When completed, he had a rather snug little nest, "'to which he carried their blankets and some of the lighter luggage. "'It was now late in the afternoon, "'and the balance of the daylight hours were devoted to the building of a rude ladder "'by means of which Lady Alice could mount to her new home. "'All during the day the forest about them had been filled "'with excited birds of brilliant plumage and dancing, chattering monkeys, "'who watched these new arrivals and their wonderful nest-building operations "'with every mark of keenest interest and fascination.' Notwithstanding that, both Clayton and his wife kept a sharp lookout. They saw nothing of larger animals, though on two occasions they had seen their little simian neighbors come screaming and chattering from the nearby ridge, casting frightened glances back over their little shoulders and evincing as plainly as though by speech that they were fleeing some terrible thing which lay concealed there. Just before dusk, Clayton finished his ladder, and... Filling a great basin with water from the nearby stream, the two mounted to the comparative safety of their aerial chamber. As it was quite warm, Clayton had left the side curtains thrown back over the roof, and as they sat like Turks upon their blankets, Lady Alice, straining her eyes into the darkening shadows of the wood, suddenly reached out and grasped Clayton's arms. "'John,' she whispered, "'Look! What is it? A man?' As Clayton turned his eyes in the direction she indicated, he saw silhouetted dimly against the shadows beyond, a great figure standing upright upon the ridge. For a moment it stood as though listening, and then turned slowly, and melted into the shadows of the jungle. What is it, John? I do not know, Alice, he answered gravely. It is too dark to see so far, and it may have been but a shadow cast by the rising moon. No, John, it was not a man. He gathered her in his arms, whispering words of courage and love into her ears. Soon after, he lowered the curtain walls, tying them securely to the trees, so that, except for a little opening toward the beach, they were entirely enclosed. As it was now pitch dark within their tiny airy, they lay down upon their blankets to try to gain, through sleep, a brief respite of forgetfulness. Clayton lay facing the opening at the front, a rifle and a brace of revolvers at his hand. Scarcely had they closed their eyes than the terrifying cry of a panther rang out from the jungle behind them. Closer and closer it came, until they could hear the great beast directly beneath them. For an hour or more they heard it sniffing and clawing at the trees which supported their platform, but at last it roamed away across the beach where Clayton could see it clearly in the brilliant moonlight, a great, handsome beast, the largest he had ever seen. During the long hours of darkness they caught but fitful snatches of sleep, for the night noises of the great jungle teeming with myriad animal life kept their overwrought nerves on edge so that a hundred times they were startled to wakefulness by piercing screams or the stealthy moving of great bodies beneath them. Join us next Sunday night at 8 p.m. for chapters 3 and 4 of Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs at 1001 Stories for the Road.